The Lord be with you. In the ancient world, Apollo, the god of light and music, sort of the Brad Pitt of his day, was the healer, the protector, the patron deity of people who were herdsmen and sailors and refugees and fugitives. Uh, In the Greek pantheon, he was one of Zeus's 54 children. And Apollo had a really long run as a celebrated deity in popular culture. For hundreds of years, Apollo was associated with one of the most famous rituals in Greek and Roman culture, and even the surrounding nations. Because, unlike all of those other Greek gods, Apollo wasn't seen as distant and aloof. Apollo was the deity who spoke to mortals, answering their questions, prophesying, warning, giving humans hints and bits of knowledge to help them on their way. How, you ask, (laughs) did Apollo speak to mortals? Well, at the foot of a mountain made of limestone in central Greece, there's a place called Delphi. A temple housed the Oracle of Apollo, which is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Has anyone here been to the... No? I'd like to go there someday. Delphi was a destination for regular pilgrimage because it was viewed as the center of the world. It was considered an ancient sort of primal place. and It was said to hold the rotting carcass of a giant serpent slain by Apollo called Python. At the Oracle of Apollo, specially chosen women, priestesses called Pythia or Pythia, would be sent into the sanctuary, and there, filled with the breath of Apollo, they would fall into a shaman's trance. Delirious and dreaming, these women would rave and cry out strange utterances and mysterious exclamations. These ecstatic phrases would then be translated and configured into poetic verses by the priests who stood by listening and translating. These words of prophecy were taken very, very seriously. Political leaders and generals consulted the oracle on everything, especially on matters of state and policy. Should we go to war? Should we tax the realm further? But normal people with regular questions made the long pilgrimage to Delphi to join a a really long line of weary pilgrims seeking guidance and assurances for the worries and woes of life. Someone gathered a list of their questions, and I read some of them, and they don't sound that different from ours. Will I be happy with the person I'm marrying? Here's a good one. Is there a way for me to avoid sickness? Will my children be okay? Will I find a good job? Should I buy stocks or bonds or olive oil futures? Now, the Christian faith holds to the belief that God has been revealed to us in creation, through the prophets and the scriptures, and that God is supremely known in Jesus. And it goes one better, assuring us that this same Jesus is at work in the world 
through the lives and the actions and the words of not a select few or the elite keepers of the secret knowledge, but by a great assembly of regular people called the church. In the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, we are told that Paul had a vision, a dream of a man from Macedonia begging, come over to Macedonia and help us. And the apostle didn't waste any time, making every haste to bring the gospel to this new land, which would turn out to be Paul's first church in Europe. Now, the first convert in Macedonia we've heard about in the previous weeks was a woman that they met at the gates of the city, the bustling Roman colony of Philippi. She was a foreigner, and her name might have even been a sort of nickname, as in that woman from Lydia, the land across on the other side of the Aegean Sea, started getting called Lydia the way some people call someone Frenchy. And maybe that name just kind of stuck. Maybe not. But we do know that Lydia was a dealer in rare and expensive high-end luxury textiles. Only the richest of the rich could afford to wear her clothes, so it's generally assumed that Lydia was a woman of means. Supporting this is the fact that soon Paul and his companions were Lydia's house guests, a part of her household, the place that would become the headquarters for the fledgling church in Philippi. So, early days in the scripture that Ruby read for us this morning. Making his way through the city, Paul encounters a young woman, a slave girl, with a special gift. And here's the really interesting bit, at least for a nerd like me. This text literally tells us that she had the spirit of Python, or at least something like it. And her masters are no dummies. Looking for answers? Troubled by the hassles of life? Don't feel like walking the 500 kilometers all the way to Delphi? Well, if I got a deal for you, why not consult our own Pythian slave girl and see what answers the mighty Apollo might have for you? This was a little bit of off-brand salesmanship, a local oracle of Apollo, and it was a undertaking that was lucrative. No doubt all sorts of regular people paid dearly for access to the gods. It's a shame that our scripture just says that she was a fortune teller because this girl's place in the town was a big deal. But when Paul shows up, there's a problem. And the girl starts prophesying, all right. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And this happened for days. And day after day, this same slave girl would find Paul in the street or in the city square and shout the same remarkable, really on-the-nose bit of revelation. Until the text tells us that grumpy old Paul finally had his fill, and he says, in the name of Jesus, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, it's a real bummer that we don't get to find out what happened to that girl. 
I'd like to think she made some new friends that day and maybe became a part of that little church. But we are told that this is a really bad day for Paul. The angry slave owners have just witnessed the loss of a very lucrative enterprise. Their human property has been stripped of its immediate value. And let's not underestimate the role that a traveling oracle service played in local society. This was a loss. The loss of a point of contact that the city valued. So with the help of the local magistrate and some legal trickery and an angry mob, which never hurts, the slave owners see Paul and his companions stripped naked and beaten and chained in a prison cell. People have observed, quite rightfully so, that Paul's letter to the church in Philippi was, is especially rich in genuine love and affection. And when we read a story like this, it's not... Hard to understand, is it? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. These stories from Acts help explain the passion and the urgency and the deep love that Paul has for this place because quite literally, he had skin in the game. He has spoken for these people, liberating and elevating some, preaching the Jesus way in their midst, blessing and teaching them. And he has taken his lumps in this place, stripped and beaten and chained in a prison. He has invested heavily in this place. He had enjoyed the hospitality of companions at their tables and in their homes, walking these roads and the landscape that he knew so well. If we read a little further in the story, Paul's pain and imprisonment would even lead to the miraculous conversion of the Roman jailer and his entire household. Another surprising addition to the church in Philippi. Paul, the pastor, knew the amazing people from a first Philippian church. The way a woman like Yodia poured her life into that place, even to her own detriment sometimes. And the way her friend Syntyche had been a mentor and a steady voice of encouragement and comfort to so many. It broke his heart when he got news that such remarkable women were a part of a disagreement. I urge Yodia, I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companion, to help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel. Friends, those of you in this room and online, Yodia and Syntyche, you matter to this community. And in your times of struggle and disagreement, I implore you, work this out. Do the work. Get the help if you need it. Find the common ground. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Because there is a lot at stake here. 
This isn't a trivial matter because Paul also knew the way that the church people can get things terribly, terribly wrong. Yes, the community of the faithful can be resilient and courageous, standing up to powers of exploitation, caring for strangers, making a safe place, a people giving thanks, doing acts of mercy and kindness, But the church is fragile. We are subject to the stresses and hazards of life together. And we can be really petty and toxic and selfish. There is a lot at stake here. A local church can destroy itself with squabbles and crankiness, with our fragile egos and our grudges, We can make a real mess of things. Paul is hopeful. Paul is encouraging. But he is no dummy. He has lived through some horrible moments, and he has witnessed miracles. Captives and slaves, dehumanized and exploited persons, traumatized people who've been set free and made new set free because their neighbors had taken risks, sticking their necks out, embracing them. Paul has witnessed estranged people who would go on to become dear friends, companions on the way, overcoming barriers of status and finances, race and language and gender and ethnicity. Paul got to see the gospel lived out. In places like Philippi, places like this. All sorts of regular folks discovering the joys and mercies of a new community. Once you take a a few moments, maybe close your eyes and dream with me in the best and most hopeful parts of your imagination. Best case scenario, what sort of projects, works of truth and beauty could you imagine for a church like this one? Do you see us engaged in a long struggle towards towards peacemaking, reconciliation, solidarity, justice? Maybe you're a practical, hands-on sort, thinking of funds to be spent on stuff like clean water and clothing and food and shelter and resources for people in need. Maybe you dream of a city that is making contributions to the life of that city, arts and culture, neighborhood resources, points of connection. Maybe right now all you're thinking of is that our young people would grow to understand what a life of faith looks like. Do you dream that this worship space would be a sanctuary, a true sanctuary, a place of healing and meditation and prayer for troubled souls? Keep dreaming, my friends, but be clear-eyed and mindful. The failure to consider the general health and well-being of our life together can sabotage even your most beautiful plans. There is a lot at stake here. 
Whether you are a relative newcomer to this place, or you've been a part of the struggles and the joys of this body of believers for years and years and years, the health of our community is an ongoing work, and you are a part of it. The consistent, gentle gentle tending of relationships, made of checking in, listening, apologies, and forgiveness, words of truth, words of encouragement. Patience for the annoying people. Grace for the awkward people. Making plenty of space for the Holy Spirit to breathe and live in our midst. Regular, stubborn, sometimes worried folks just like us, working through our disagreements with respect and kindness, taking care to understand one another. A church that practices this sort of life together can dream and dream and dream and live to see amazing things, miracles even. The miracle, the strange and beautiful hope of the Jesus way, the good news that Paul brought to his first church in Europe, is that God speaks and acts and makes things happen in the world with people like you and me. The 16th century Spanish mystic Teresa of Avila famously reminds us, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Amen. Thanks be to God.